Greetings, folks, and welcome to episode 80 of the Far Beyond Metal podcast. I'm your host and guide on this metal journey, Daniel Cordova. In this episode, I welcome back my first ever return recommendation in Sacramento's atmospheric noise duo, Venetian Veil. Venetian Veil released their latest album, There is a Sadness in the Heart of This World, back in May, and I feel like they pair well with my main guest in this episode, Steve Von Till. Steve is one of the guitarists and vocalists in the legendary sludge, post-metal, whatever the hell you want to call them, Pioneer's Neurosis. Outside of Neurosis, Steve is an accomplished solo artist recording under the Harvestmen and Tribes of Neurot monikers, as well as under his own name. On August 7th, Steve is releasing a couple of things. The first is his new solo album, No Wilderness Deep Enough. This album is an intense yet beautiful ambient and neoclassical experience that Steve has called the most beautiful thing he's ever done. Also on August 7th, he is releasing a book of poetry called Harvestmen, 23 Untitled Poems and Collected Lyrics. Said lyrics are from his now five solo albums. Steve came on to discuss his first live poetry reading, his relationship with nature, playing Ozfest, and more. And in something I thought I'd never do, we talk about the one time he and I crossed paths and I was convinced that he hated me for my very existence. Small spoiler, our beef has been squashed. Now, before my chat, here's Steve with some of Dream of Trees from the upcoming album No Wilderness Deep Enough. It often seems To be sir good man how about you not too bad how is your uh see your are you an hour ahead of me uh what I, time zone are you uh pacific so i'm i'm pacific too the north of idaho is the same oh that's right coast. how's your uh almost lunch time i guess uh pretty mellow i mean you know it's summer uh summer break from work so it's really just been doing a lot of label work and projects around the house since i can't be out playing shows how was your uh your second half of your school year doing stuff distance oh i sucked <clears throat> yeah that was um i teach fourth grade so it's nine-year-olds so imagine going from a you know traditional paper pencil environment where you supplement with technology when it makes sense to trying to teach 28 families how to integrate meaningfully with the technology and while you're spending all day trying to find online content that doesn't suck i work i work in like education adjacent stuff at a university and we just got the word that we're going to be remote through the fall quarter are you also going to be doing the same thing next year uh idaho's a strange creature we haven't decided yet okay We, we actually we actually went back for a week in june oh wow how was how was that week well they did lim- they limited it to nine kids per classroom basically just for quote closure end quote okay you know to come in and get their stuff and say goodbye um <clears throat> and granted cases and infection rate here was extremely low yeah you do have that benefit california's a mess <laughs> yeah well they're all here now so oh yeah all the california all the californians are on summer summer vacation 
all running around here from all over the country like it's normal. Yeah. Everybody's out. Everything's open. Yeah, it's very strange here. Like, people are out in masks, but it, they it's they should just be closed. I don't get it. It would be so easy if we just closed for, like, a month and then figured it out. But whatever. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm in a certain kind of a weird spot. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Mark Maron's podcast, WTF? Uh, yes. Yeah. I listen to it. So it depends on the guest. So in the very, very early days, it was just him meeting up with old comedy friends and basically asking, hey, are we cool? Because um, he has just a history of long beefs. Uh, we don't have a beef, but I have an odd interaction I have with you from 12 years ago. Or not 12 years ago, like eight years ago. Um that I was very intimidated to interview you for this this podcast, frankly, and I realized it may have stemmed from this one moment. Uh, I was at your show at the Fox Theater where you did the release show for Honor, Found, and Decay, and uh, Voivod's PR people reset, reached out to me and wanted to see if I wanted to interview them. So I was like, yeah, sure. Um, I was waiting to chat with those guys, and you walked by, and at the time, you were the only member of Neurosis I could, like, point out and i went oh hey and i like waved at you and you like stared me you like looked at me stared me down for a second and kind of like gave me a confused kind of like annoyed look and kept moving and i have that moment has stuck with me for eight years and like i didn't take it personally you could have been in show mode but i'm just like oh man i think steve hates me so are we cool we're cool all right no i i you know i think when you, when you're a public person, or I'm mean, I'm not even that public of a person, but I think when you're a considered somebody in in the music industry or whatever, you're held to kind of a different standard based on micro behaviors, and you know a backstage area is kind of like the the rep uh, your only chance to have a private moment, especially it's you know I don't live there, so it's you know it's like I was probably just focused on whatever my mind was. I probably wasn't even there in my mind. I was probably focused on wherever I was headed to whatever fire I was trying to put out or issue I was trying to deal with or, or whatever was going on. So, I mean, if I, if if I did anything rude, it was completely unintentional and I apologize. Sometimes, (laughs) sometimes I can, I can be not very present if I am, if I've got something on my mind. And I totally saw it from your side of things where, like, you're prepping for a show, you look over, you see some rando just, like, say out loud, like, uncontrollably, oh, hey. And then you're like, I've got shit to do. So, like, I I just thought it was a... I I might not even have known if you were talking to me or not, you know? Yeah. And just trying to figure it out. And if I didn't recognize you, go, I must be talking to somebody else. Oh, good. So we're cool. Needed that. Um, We're, We're cool. Awesome. So, uh, moving on to your new album, uh, you recently did a, a poetry reading as far as the as part of the uh, Sofa Sonic Festival. How was doing a poetry reading virtually for you? And have you done any sort of like pure reading performance before? I've never done a, a reading before. That was my first one. Um, the, uh, I mean, being a teacher, I'm used to being in front of kids, but like adults, that's a whole different. I don't even like talking on stage you know obviously with neurosis we don't so that's not an issue but uh like in solo stuff you know the awkward silences between songs you know i'm very i'm very uh i'm a reluctant performer i I, i'm an artist driven to to share my art publicly but 
I'm also always that shy kid who doesn't even want to go to the counter to pay for a candy bar, you know, um, let alone talk in front of folks. So that was uh, uh, kind of this whole period of my artistic development, this this record and how different it is. Uh, even saying the words I'm releasing a poetry book makes the punk rock me like choke on the words before I even let them out of my throat. And uh, so all of us kind of confronting this uh, these fear and self-doubt and getting out of my comfort zone with the hopes of growing as a person and, and really embracing um, the gifts that the muse offers when you surrender. You, you kind of touched on something I was going to ask about later because you told Rolling Stone that this is the most beautiful piece of music that you've tapped into as a solo artist and, you know, putting out a poetry book. What do you think the younger version of you would say to you now with this album, this sound, and, like, this path that you're currently on? Uh, no clue. I'm not the same person I was, and, and I'm, I'm a firm believer in the time machine paradox uh, that you can't, you can't change a single thing uh, or... Or the, or the future becomes a different future. So I, I can't really entertain that that thought. Fair enough. Um, the first chunk of your new book is just, they're not actually lyric. Well, I'm assuming they could have been lyrics, but they are not lyrics in songs that you've put out. Um, were those intended to be standalone poems? And if so, how did you determine that these are just the poems and not to be songs? <clears throat> Yeah, I've been writing poetry my entire adult life. Um, not necessarily good poetry. I, I'm not even sure this this stuff is good poetry. That's for other people to decide. But, um, <clears throat> but really, they've just lived and died uh, in my personal journals. I've you know I've shared a few with friends here and there. But um, the most place in which my poems have found expression is. Uh, hacked and butchered to bits as fodder for lyrics when I'm when I'm in need of words and phrases um, that fit. Now, the way I've always written songs in any context is always music first. Words are always the very last thing uh, to materialize, and so lyrics and poems are very different animals to me, and they serve very different purposes. The lyrics, because of that way I wrote that I just described they have to fit a sonic environment. They have to have a certain cadence, a certain rhythm. Uh, oftentimes I'll, I'll, I'll be listening to the music and it's kind of like listening to the wind through the trees or like, you know, disembodied voices. What is it? What is it trying to tell me? What is it trying to say? And, and sometimes I'll hear like, you know, what vowel sound I'm supposed to hang on, you know? And, uh, so I'll have to find a line that accommodates that. Um, and so in a lot of ways, my lyrics have often been some of that kind of translating that secret code and then like searching through journals and old poems, looking for bits and pieces to steal um, and then organizing them kind of like a Burroughs cut up in a way, but all of my own material. So it's all going to sort of make some sort of sense and hammering it into something that serves the song. And, and you know, you have this emotional sonic landscape for the lyrics to have their meaning and to provide context 
But a poem, on the other hand, and I did write these specifically with the intention of not butchering them, um, <clears throat> has to claim a space on a on a piece of paper, and has to own that little piece of uh, uh, real estate, and and give all the meaning and emotional context that you want it to have has to be contained with the words themselves. There's no music to give it a framework, uh, to give it an emotional, uh, backdrop. And so, um, it was really in, in tandem with writing the lyrics for the new album. I had stolen two lines. Uh, we have the sea and we'll always have the sky. And I stole those for a song cause I really needed them and they really felt right there. They really felt great to sing, but I've, I felt guilty because I really felt like the poem that I had just taken them from was a good poem on its own. And then the, the rest of the poem was going to become meaningless without the strongest two lines. And uh, at that moment, I said, you know, I'm going to I'm going to write a batch of poems with the intention of not stealing from them and not letting them be lyric fodder and um see what happens and i so i i wrote daily for a while last year and um when i had come up with 23 of them and i noticed that i hadn't given any of them titles yet it felt like that was supposed to be the body of work the number 23 is great good prime number looks good sounds good uh i toyed with the idea of titling the poems and some people had suggested it but i the more I looked at that, that seemed like it would be kind of, uh, again, like in imprisoning, imprisoning the potential outcomes of the poems, uh, with a definition, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I thought that I was just going to sit and edit those and, and get them into the best possible shape and, and put it out there. I, I didn't know it would become the book that it is right now which I'm extremely proud of. I thought I'd go to Kinko's and make a little chat book, you know? <laughs> um, but then just in, in just thing, I thought maybe other people are interested in that kind of behind the curtains relationship to lyrics and poetry and where they come from for me. And, and if I tied them together with my solo lyrics and put it out simultaneously with my upcoming record, it kind of feels related in that challenging the comfort zone deal that, um, that uh, maybe I would find an audience that was interested. Um, I I was looking through the like digital copy we were sent to kind of preview and you know promotional reasons, and I I noticed that the new album is sequenced different than it is um, on the page and on like in the songs. Is there a reason for this? Are you like telling a different story than you were on the album with the lyrics on? The I don't think so that might have just been not paying attention you know since i laid it out myself Mm -hmm. or i may not have had the sequence of the record final um beforehand i'm pretty sure that was the case i feel like i hear you flipping through one now yeah i'm i'm uh good ears good (laughs) microphone um it's all you. <laughs> I may have changed the sequence 
you know, last minute. Because if I were to have changed the order, I should have put um, what I should have done. Now that I'm looking at it, is I should have put the two lines I stole mm-hmm. uh, as the last poem. In fact, I remember thinking that and meant to, because the first two lines of the of the first poem is "We have the sea and we will always have the sky," and uh, those are the last two lines of the song, "The Old Straight Track." So what I should have done is put that one last to bookend it properly. Oh well. That can be uh, the second pressing or the second volume of it or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you seem pretty stoked about like putting out a a book. H- has this inspired you to do any sort of memoir or novel? I know like this book hasn't even technically come out yet, but like maybe the wheels are turning. Um, I I don't write prose. I'm not. I have no gift or patience to write prose or uh, memoir. I'd rather read other people's memoirs than write my own. My life has been a flower, you know. Uh, but. Um, uh, but it, I, li- I like the way that it is opened. And it seems like it's opened a new pathway here for my the second half of uh, second half of life. You know, as I cross the fifty mark and and have this beautiful record, which has kind of pushed me in some new ways and brought some new things out of my voice and some new ways to write music. But also, oh, you know, now that there's a pathway that um, I've accepted uh, to myself that I. I'm willing to put poetry out there in the world for other people to read that, um, that I now have another outlet and that, you know, that's cool. I mean, I've always liked print stuff. I mean, it goes back to, I, I keep finding myself going back to the beginning, you know, here I am now in a position knocking on bookstores, asking if they want to carry my book, you know, and so you're like, shipping around a demo. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, walk into the skate shop and, uh, you know, and Campbell and saying, Hey man, will you sell my demo? You know? Uh, and like, uh, friends and I doing a fanzine, you know, in our teens, you know? And so the whole idea of, uh, I mean, I turned out to not self publish this. That was my original plan was, but then a friend of mine graciously offered to pick it up and put it out and legitimize it, you know, with his, um, press with quote real end quote authors and uh you know so i get to be uh i get to wear my imposter suit uh with folks that do it for real and get some you know some independent distribution for it so that that was awesome as well but i i still love that idea of especially in this technological age of, of creating physical uh physical representations of art to hold and interact with in a tangible sense.
of course, was At the End of the Road by Neurosis from their album Given to the Rising. I don't actually have a first band recommendation for this episode, but instead I'd like to request you all do the old podcast cliche. Please subscribe to and rate this podcast over at Apple Music. Then please tell your pals about the show and send them to farbandmetalpodcast.com for more episodes. Now that that shameful plug is out of the way, here are some of Shadows on the Run from Steve Von Till's No Wilderness Deep Enough before we wrap up our chat. Remember all our names Remember all our names The soul is what is left Spirit dies The past will not erase uh, The new album, which we've touched on a couple times, called No Wilderness, Wilderness Deep Enough, uh, it's it's definitely from somebody who's really in tune with nature like you are. Like I can hear every part of it. Uh, when did you find yourself connecting with nature, presumably more than those around you, like in, I'm assuming the punk rock scene and stuff like that? Mm. I can't say if I connected more than other people. It was when I lived in the city and growing up in the Bay area, it was more of a longing to be connected. Like it it felt like a a painful absence. Um, You know, I was, I was never like an a- avid outdoorsman. I wouldn't drop everything and go camping or hiking at the drop of a hat, you know, um, because I chose that kind of busy lifestyle of being integrated in the world of, you know, booking shows, playing shows, making records, you know, recording stuff, all of that, everything that goes with being a DIY, you know, punk and, and and that kind of busy lifestyle of being an active part of of an international community of people being creative not to mention you know having a day job and a family often kept me too busy to build any sort of connection and so i really what i, I realized was i had to get out of the urban beehive and i had to i had to live somewhere where that was the environment in which i was being busy <laughs> you know yeah you know, so my little my little commute from work is 11 miles down a, a winding country road, and I step outside my back door, and you know, uh, can piss out in the forest with the dog. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, I've seen your uh, Instagram photos. Like you have a beautiful chunk of land there. Yeah, it's you know, and so so really, it's just about you know needing to be here, and you know. Uh, Oftentimes I'm spending time staring out the window at it, you know, in the neurot office here out in the barn. But, um, uh, but yeah, so that, that whole idea. And since I've been here, I mean, it it has given me the opportunity to breathe and to uh, use metaphor, use nature metaphors, not just from the longing for a connection, but now from the connected, you know, now I, I, I know what wildflowers are coming next in the sequence of the of the year. I, I, I know when the snow is about to come. I I uh, 
<clears throat> I sense when the earth is going to sleep, you know, when it's waking up, I, I, I make note of the moon often, almost every night. I, I've seen more sunrises than you could ever see living in a city with buildings blocking it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a bazillion sunsets. Uh, I've been up in the mountains. I've, I've been more in tune with the cycles of life and death. Um, in the natural world and um but still ultimately you know it's not like i'm just sitting writing a bunch of nature poems i'm I'm using those the metaphors of nature for the internal world of the of the human emotion and and the human mind and uh, you know contemplating those existential questions of what's my relationship to nature what's my relationship to my community and my loved ones what's my relationship to myself and my own mind and and then zooming back out to the big picture what's what's humanity's purpose here what what are what are we doing with our uh, connection or lack thereof to the universe and the and the earth and and each other is is your daughter into the remote living because i know she's graduated high school so i imagine she's gonna spread her wings I've got two daughters. My oldest uh, is a senior in college. My youngest just graduated high school. They uh, they love the area. I don't. I don't I, they don't want to. I mean, when I first got here, I thought twelve acres was a ton. Like I didn't even know what to do with it all. And now, but now that I've been here, it just feels like a big yard. If you know, now I could I could see having one hundred and twenty or one thousand two hundred, but. I like it did work out in the fact that I'm only an hour away from an airport if I need to get somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but I still long for, you know, grass is always greener somewhere else. I, I still long for more space, you know, especially as the, the area is changing and developing. A lot of people are moving here and uh, developing, but I think my daughters, they, um, they've got their own thing. I think they like the small town versus the city. I don't think either one of them has had the bug for the city yet. Um, but they like, I think they like town life as it is here. I mean, technically it's a city, but it's like 60,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you mind if I ask you some neurosis stuff? Sure. So this is just something I thought about recently that's kind of been in my head. Because um, I went to a bunch of Ozfests over the years. I never actually saw neurosis when you guys were on the tour. Um, but I saw bands playing at, you know, two in the afternoon on a parking lot playing 25 minute sets. And I felt it was hard to imagine (laughs) Neurosis doing that. Was that what you guys were doing back then? Like, what was your Ozfest like? Yeah. Two, two 20 minute sets a day. Oh, you did two sets. Yeah. There was this whole like little band world of, uh, wait, did played two 20 minute sets a day and it was always in a weird location. Sometimes a parking lot, sometimes like a vendor area within the, yeah, it was, it was weird. I mean, and really the only reason we agreed to do that tour, we didn't think anybody would get it at all. I mean, one of the sets was two songs and one of the sets was one song and, noise that's what i kind of imagined <laughs> and uh we couldn't do our projections which we were absolutely religious about then so our visual guy pete 
we made we made physical propaganda with strange abstract statements and uh, um, uh, with accompanying photos, just strange, obscure stuff with our address on the back, our P.O. box. And uh, he would just walk around and hand out this strange propaganda. Um, but the, the main reason why we did that was because um, it meant we got to watch Black Sabbath 30 times. I do a lot for that sort of thing. And you saw like the proper lineup too. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't Bill Ward. Oh, it wasn't? Oh, no. But to be, to be honest and nothing against Bill, I did see them with Bill Ward also after that. Mm-hmm. As they, did had I. Done, they did a small arena tour. Yeah. After that Ozfest. Uh, and that was great. But the drummer they had on our tour was uh, Mike Gordon from Faith No More. Oh shit. That's also good. And I have to say that he brought, uh, again, all all hail Bill Ward for writing all those parts. But he wasn't really in a position to pull off the parts at, at an album level at, at the age and physical condition he was in compared to Mike Borden, who gave it a youthful kick in the ass. You know, and drumming is hard. Drum, you know, I think guitarist, basing, singing, you've got a lot more room to be an old man than uh playing the fills in war pigs did anyone ever send you anything weird from the p.o box you put on the the pamphlets uh probably we got a lot of weird shit good <laughs> yeah uh do you remember the first time you saw a fan with a neurosis tattoo because the facebook is a lot of that and how was how was that as you know the person who created all that stuff to see it looking back at you from somebody's body forever. Yeah, that's weird. Um, I don't (laughs) remember. I don't remember the first. Well, actually I remember one significant one. Um, we, this was probably 93, 94. We were touring. Um, we're touring a lot. We, uh, there was one town in South Dakota, that um, oh, let me quote it properly. Um, I don't think it was Rapid City. Um, uh, let me ask Google. <laughs> Maybe Google knows. Um, knows everything, so probably. What are some other towns in South Dakota? Sioux Falls, maybe. That's like the other one I can name off the top of my head. Um, um, there was this biker bar that would put on shows there, and we'd play, you know, a couple hundred capacity. And there was there was this whole group of kids that, I mean, they were kids. They were young, man. They were like 15, 16, who were really into creating a scene they had a lot of supportive parents and they they put on all ages shows in whatever way they could sometimes at this biker bar uh, and other times I think they rented a community hall like a Mason's Hall or something and they were really trying to put on their own kind of version of like a Gilman Street scene you know where they would host out of town bands and try to get them enough money to get to the next town and feed them and treat them respectfully you know which is all we 
cared about those days. And um, <clears throat> I remember one of these young gals had gotten permission from her parents to get a tattoo, I think, before she turned 18. And it was the uh, Quetzalcoatl version of the Uruboros thing from the back of Enemy of the Sun album, like as a full back piece. And that was her first tattoo. That's your first I tattoo. Believe. That goes hard. <laughs> oh, my God. I believe. Yeah. If memory serves me correctly, which it often does not. But um, <clears throat> but yeah, that was uh, that was quite an impression for sure. And and I understand that dedication. I mean, luckily, hopefully people tattoo the images, which can be meaningful outside of the band if you need tattooing words i have a personal issue with i think that's weird um it's uh, but uh but good you know good artwork is good artwork right. and uh you know my first tattoo was a king crimson piece of art and uh it's long since covered up but um was it just tony levin playing the stick <laughs> that, Sorry. that made me that made me puke in my mouth <laughs> sorry uh, not so much as the funk fingers <laughs> if you know if you don't know what i'm talking about are those his attachments that he puts on to like slap yeah i i didn't know those had a name i thought they were just weird appendages gross yeah gross um but um you know I, like i willfully got a neurosis tattoo the day let me die uh, not neurosis i mean motorhead um, and that's just my, um, my allegiance to that music that's been there for me so many times. So I get it. I'm, I'm a music fan and a music dork, you know, I, uh, you know, I think, um, yeah, it's weird to be a part of something that other people hold in esteem the way I hold other things in esteem. It's hard to wrap your brain around sometimes, but I think, you know, when you're lucky enough to be able to look behind the curtain of where creativity comes from and tap into it once in a while and, and also have the good sense to know that uh, to get your ego the hell out of there and know that you're not responsible for it. It just exists. And some people are lucky to tap into it sometimes. Don't get don't get carried away. Take yourself too seriously. Um, then it's uh yeah, I don't know. It's a beautiful thing. Cool. Uh, do you have any plans for another t- Tribe of Neurot album? Not currently, no. Okie doke. Alrighty, uh, thank you for talking to me today. I, I do adore the new album, and I really need to give a, the, the book a deeper dive. Um, but uh, good luck with your, your fall. Hopefully that all works out in a nice, you know, in a nice way, and get out of there healthy. Yeah, right back at you, man. Stay safe and stay sane, and... Uh... Next time we pass each other in a room, hopefully I don't give you a a dirty look. I'll be like, I'm that guy. You'll be like, oh, yeah, you. I was right the first time. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Daniel. Thanks, man. Later, Steve. You as well. Bye. Bye.
Wilderness Deep Enough by Steve Von Till will be out on August 7th via Neurot Records. To order your copy, head to vontill.com. There you can also order Steve's book of poetry, 23 untitled poems and collected lyrics. Since my interview, I've been able to fully engross myself in the book, and I can say that it is a beautiful book that becomes a fascinating glimpse into another facet of an amazing artist. Now, to end this episode, I am recommending some friends from Venetian Vale. Venetian Vale are a noise, doom, ambient, etc. duo from Sacramento, California, comprised of Jim Willig and Susan Hunt. Their sound is pretty comparable to Steve's solo stuff, so I wanted to put them together and hopefully expose some of you to this awesome duo. I first featured them back on episode 27 of this podcast, and since then they've put out a lot of stuff. Including this last May, they released a new album called There is a Sadness in the Heart of This World. From that album, here is Swallow in its entirety.
You can get Venetian Veil's There is a Sadness at the Heart of This World and everything else from the band over at venetianveil.bandcamp.com. Like I plugged a bit earlier, you can head over to farbeyondmetalpodcast.com. There, if you're in a band, you can hit the contact area and hit me to your music, and perhaps you'll be featured on an episode of the show. You can also head to facebook.com slash farbeyondmetal, Twitter at underscore farbeyondmetal, Instagram at farbeyondmetalpod. And of course, the theme song is Far Beyond Metal by the band Strapping Young Lad from their album The New Black, courtesy of Century Media Records and Devin Townsend himself. Thank you for listening. A Catbox Production.